listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. We're living in times when people struggle tremendously with the concept of authority. Authority is questioned all around us, and young people are being raised at a time when they believe that they have the right to live as they please, that if the authority above them asks them or expects them to do something that they do not like, then they can simply violate that authority. Such a rebellious climate is very much against the precepts of the word of the Lord. Authority is taught in Scripture, and there are various forms of authority. We're studying 1 Timothy chapter 6, and in the verse number 13, Paul exercises apostolic authority, and he says to Timothy, I give thee charge in the sight of God. Here we find Paul exercising his apostolic authority. And thus we come under the word of God. We come as those who must submit to the word of God. And we seek to listen and hear what the word of God expects of our lives in these days. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. We are studying Paul's first letter to Timothy. And let me read to you again the words from chapter 6 and the verse number 11 through to the verse number 14. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just ask for God's help again as we come to think about these verses together today. Eternal God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that we receive. Help us, O Lord, not to be rebellious in our spirit. Help us, O Lord, to be submissive to the authority of your word, that we would live in subject to your precepts and that we'd walk in that manner that is pleasing in thy sight and so bless all who are listening today give them help give help O Lord as we consider the word in Jesus precious name Amen as I've said already our reluctance to embrace any authority means many struggle with the language of these verses I give thee charge These are words whereby Paul is demonstrating his right as an apostle to charge Timothy, his son, in the faith. You see, as Protestants, we do believe in apostolic authority. That authority does not lie in a pope or papal succession, but it lies in the word of God, the scriptures of truth. Apostolic authority means that Christ has chosen apostles And as they serve under his commission, 
They have the very authority of Christ and they have the right to bring words of command. Hence, the word charge used in verse number 13 is around 20 times translated with the word command. It's used in an interesting fashion in Acts chapter 16 with respect to the imprisonment of Paul and Silas. They're, they're in Philippi and a multitude rises up against them and the magistrates command that they be beaten. And the text tells us, And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Here's the word charge used with respect to the instructions to the jailer to ensure the safe imprisonment of Paul and Silas. Not so much safety as in their comfort, but safety in the fact that they would not escape and that none of the multitude would come in and do them harm. But the point I'm making is this charge is not a suggestion, but it is a solemn and a binding word. The jailer felt this obligation to such an extent that when God sends the earthquake and the prison doors open, the jailer fears for his life at the thought that he would not keep his charge. That's the sense of of the solemnity he felt himself under when he was charged to keep them safely. Hence, to charge someone is to place them under a solemn obligation. Hence, Paul charges Timothy to keep the commandment without spot unrebukable. The charge has these two parts. What he must do? Well, he must keep the commandment. He must flee these things, verse 11. He must follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. He must fight the good fight of faith. He must lay hold on eternal life. He's charged to keep this commandment. How he must do it? He must do it without spot. He must do it in a manner that is unrebukable. In other words, his obedience to the commandment must be pure in the inside and from the outside it must be approved of others. And this is indeed the proper aim of the Christian. We understand that we will not attain perfection, but that does not mean that perfection should not be our aim and our goal. We want to know obedience to God from the inside so that we are not to be rebuked from the outside. And thus the words in verse number 13 and 14 They serve as motivations that we would obey this charge. The clauses, they surround the charge and they're given to help Timothy to obey the charge. And this is how we all function. There are things in our lives that act as motivations to enable us to perform a certain task or to obey a certain command. Why do children, at least at times, do what they are told at school? Well, it may be out of fear of punishment. It may be due to some promise of reward. It may be because they like and respect the teacher who asks them. There are several motivations to enable the child to do what is required of them in the school setting. And so in all of our lives, there are certain motivations that are used to enable us to perform certain actions. And so it is here, there are motivations that Paul uses to encourage Timothy to flee sin, to follow righteousness, to fight the fight of faith, to lay hold on eternal life. And those motivations are are very straightforward. He is to remember that he lives in the sight of God. He is to remember that God is the source of life. He is to remember the example of Christ. 
and he is to remember that Christ is coming back. These are the four motivations that Paul presents before Timothy. And so let's study those four motivations individually. First of all, if we are to do what is right in the sight of God, we must remember that we live in the sight of God. Paul tells Timothy, I give thee charge in the sight of God. He calls God to witness the charge. Hence, disobedience to the charge will be present in the sight of God. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. As he charges them, he's reminding Timothy that he lives in the presence of God, that God's eyes are in every place beholding the evil and the good. You see, the motivation is used as those who fear the Lord. There's an interesting text in Leviticus chapter 19 where the word of God tells us, Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear thy God, I am the Lord. And what is interesting there is how the negative commands are put alongside the fear of God. We, we must not curse the deaf. Uh, to do such as cardus, they cannot hear our curses. We should not put a stumbling block, a, a trip before the blind, they cannot see such a thing. But rather than doing these things, we are to fear the Lord. The implication is that we live in the fear of God when we remember that our actions, though not seen or heard by men, are seen and heard by God. Even though the deaf may not hear and the blind may not see our actions, we are to remember that God sees and hears. And so it is the desire of the child of God, living under the fear of God, it is our desire to know God's smile and to shun God's frown. This is not simply an Old Testament concept. In the New Testament, Peter tells his readers that they are to pass the time of their sojourning in fear. In 1 Peter 2 verse 17, he says this, Honour all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the king. When we are slow to flee sin, when we are careless in following, when we are feeble in the fight of faith, we are to remember that God sees. You see, this motivation of God seeing us will only properly hold when our hearts love the Lord. To fear God and to love the Lord are not in opposition. Rather, they come properly in unity. If we have no love for the Lord, well, the response may be, well, who cares if God sees? That, that is foolishness in the highest form. But for those who love the Lord, the fear of God motivates us in obedience. It's not a motivation of obedience out of terror, but a godly fear, a filial fear, the fear of a son. You see, we love the Lord, and we obey those that we love and respect. Disobedience comes in home or school or even in society when we lose that fear we lose that love and we lose that respect. That's always the case. When we do not love and respect those over us, then the tendency of our hearts is to disobey their commands. And so it is for the Lord. When our hearts are dull, we are slow to obey. But when we love the Lord and we remember that the Lord sees, then we want to please him out of love. And so we are motivated 
properly when we remember that we live in the sight of God. Secondly, we, we, we're motivated to obey the Lord when we remember that God is the source of life. The descriptions of God given by Paul here are very deliberate. There are so many things that he could have said about the Lord, but Paul chooses the words, who quickeneth all things. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things. The last thing he said in the commandment was to lay hold on eternal life. Do this because God sees, and do this because God gives. He gives us life whereby we can obey, and he gives us life as a reward of our obedience. In other words, your determined effort to gain eternal life is not pointless. We understand that we may feel uncomfortable with this statement, that we exert effort to gain eternal life. If I remind you what we studied last time, it is a gift from God. We receive it all from God in calling, yet we are commanded to make every effort not to give up in the race. There are these dual truths of God's sovereignty and salvation and our responsibility. But the encouragement to Timothy and to us is that as we pursue eternal life, it is not a pointless pursuit. It is not a pipe dream. Paul is telling Timothy, God gives life. He gives eternal life in the rebirth. That life is kept in us by the power of God, and he will give us the joy of everlasting life in his presence, even as a reward as we walk obediently in this world. And so, and that's the second motivation. Remember that God is the source of life. Thirdly then, Paul motivates Timothy by telling him to remember the example of Christ. He says there, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Remember from verse number 12, that true faith, the true faith that chases eternal life, is a faith that makes public profession. It was there in, in verse number 12, and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. A good confession, the same word that is used in verse number 12 for profession is translated by the word confession in verse number 13. So God sees and God gives us life. Christ also sees and he shows us the way to make public profession, public confession. He did this in the presence of Pilate. His righteousness was undeniable to Pilate. We read in Luke chapter 23, verse 4, Pilate's words, I find no fault in this man. It's recorded also in John chapter 18, I find in him no fault at all. Christ's confession did not waver even to the point of death. The word before, who before Pontius Pilate can be read in the sense of in the days of Pontius Pilate. In other words, Christ's life of perfect obedience stood as a witness in the times of Pontius Pilate. Not only did Pilate see it, but all saw it. And so we have the encouragement in a text like Hebrews chapter 12 that we are to run the race with patience. And we do so in light of, for example, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ endured. Christ obeyed. And he shows us 
that when we are afflicted with cowardice, he is our captain. He leads us in the paths of courageous obedience. Now, I think there is great assurance here that as we live in the sight of Christ, we live with the assurance of grace from the one who understands all of our needs. Yes, he he is an example. He is a clear example of what it is to persevere in obedience to the Lord. But he also is one who understands us in all of our infirmities. And so as you struggle today to press on, as you struggle to flee and to follow and to fight and to lay hold of eternal life, when you struggle in your walk with God, remember your captain, remember Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. He is one who is able to give you all grace. And he is one who, despite the horrible afflictions that he suffered at the hands of men, was able to persevere and do so unto the end. Remember, please, the example of Christ. And then in the fourth place, the fourth motivation that Paul gives Timothy is to remember that Christ is coming back. Let me read again these words. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells Timothy and tells all of us that we are to keep the commandment while waiting for the Lord's appearing. There is some debate as to what is referred to here as the Lord's appearing. Well, it refers to his second coming. Paul uses it that way in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in the verse number 1, where it says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And so his appearing is that event consistent with his judgment and the coming finally of his kingdom. We also have that phrase in Second Timothy 4 verse 8, those who love his appearing. We are looking for Titus chapter 2, verse 13. We're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so his appearing refers to his coming back, his return. And as we contemplate the return of Christ, we we do see it used as a tremendous motivation for obedience. It is so in a couple of ways. Firstly, in light of the certainty of his coming. He shall indeed return. He he shall appear. There is no doubt as to the return of Christ Jesus. He shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Even as the Lord was taken into glory, the apostles were told, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven, this same Jesus? which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. In our day, we are not unlike the people in Peter's time. And in Peter, as he writes his second epistle, he makes point that there were those who were doubting the certainty of the promise. It has not yet come to pass, therefore is the promise untrue. And, of course, Peter makes the point, no, Christ shall indeed return. The certainty of his coming is a reminder to us that Christ will come as our triumphant judge and saviour. 
The sovereignty of his coming is also in view. He will come in his own time. He will appear in the sovereign purpose of God. The disciples were puzzled again as to when Christ the Messiah would restore the kingdom. And Christ says to them in Acts chapter 1, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. In other words, the seasons, the epochs, not only the day and the hour, but the very error of Christ's return was to remain unknown to the disciples. It is important to understand the timing of the Lord's return is not known and is not to be known. We're told by Christ himself in Matthew chapter 24, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We understand that Christ at that point in his life does not draw from his divinity for knowledge in this area. In his humanity, he is unknowing regarding the day of his return. It has not been revealed to him by the Father at that point. And so the unknownness of Christ's return is used to motivate us in obedience. Paul would take that thought in First Thessalonians chapter 5. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. In the context of these times and seasons, from chapter 4 it is the return of Christ. And he says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a womb with child, and they shall not escape. There is a suddenness of the coming of the Lord. He comes as a thief. And Christ himself would use that particular metaphor. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. And Christ applies that truth. His coming will be as a thief. And he applies that in Matthew 24. Therefore be ye also ready. For in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. It is vital that every generation be exhorted to live in expectation of the Lord's return. Remember the context of these words. Paul is telling Timothy, flee sin. He's telling Timothy, follow Christ's likeness. He's telling Timothy, fight the fight of faith. He's telling Timothy, lay hold on eternal life. And he's telling Timothy to do this, to be ready because Christ is coming back. Every generation must be exhorted to live in expectation of the Lord's return. The fact that we do not know its timing does not mean he will not come. Every man and every generation must be ready. Dear listener, today I exhort you, be ready for Christ's return. Ensure that you've trusted Christ as your Saviour, that you've turned from your sins and you're laying hold upon Christ. For the day of his return is a day of judgment and the day of the outpouring of his wrath. And only those who are in Christ will be safe on that day. And those of you who have trusted Christ, then there is the expectation that you live continually watching and waiting for his return. An historic confession of faith, the Westminster Confession, in chapter 33 in the paragraph 3 says this, As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So will he have that day unknown to men. And then we're told, why did he have this day unknown? 
well, that they may shake off all carnal security, and that they be always watchful, because they know not at what hour the Lord will come, and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. All manner of debates abound around the second coming of Christ. But whenever the second coming of Christ is taught in the New Testament, it is used as an example, as a motivation for godly living. Let me just give you one last text before we close today's broadcast. It is found in Second Peter chapter 3 and the verse number 14. Remember again that Second Peter chapter 3 is dealing with those who doubted that the Lord would return. And Peter makes the point, the old yes history is heading in the direction of Christ's return, and that the day of the Lord is delayed but not in the timetable of God. Uh, for the Lord, a day is a thousand years. And the Lord's delay is to be seen as his long-suffering that we would repent. But as he emphasizes the certainty of the Lord's return, he says this, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. That sounds so much like Paul's words, say, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the two great apostles, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, are united in charging the church, in charging you and in charging me. They are united in charging us to consider Christ's return and to live in obedience unto that day. To be saved by grace is a wonderful blessing. To be set free from sin that we can live for Christ is a wonderful privilege. And with such privilege comes the responsibility of living in obedience to Christ, not because that would earn salvation, but because that is our happy, happy privilege to live for the glory of God in this fallen world. Well, let me just close with a brief word of prayer. The eternal God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to your hearts today. You, O oh Lord, know the hearts of those who are listening. And so bless the words to their souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.